0: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. That is the sound of the past and the sound of the future. It's the old steam whistle that still goes off four times a day in the town of Corning in upstate New York, home to Corning Incorporated. Decades ago, the company invented famous brands of glass that you probably have in your own kitchen like Pyrex and Corningware. And then the company reinvented itself as a maker of glass for fiber optic cables and automobiles and displays. And it went on to create Gorilla Glass, the material that makes the screen of your smartphone almost
1: unscratchable. It's been an amazing invention. Gorilla is on more than 5 billion devices.
0: In this episode, we'll go to Corning to explore the idea that glass will turn up in even more places in the near future. Scientists at Corning think the descendants of Gorilla Glass could be used on practically every surface around us, from our refrigerators to the dashboards of our cars.
2: Glass has a a bright future because glass has these incredible properties to be adapted to so many different uses. Building that structure
3: atom by atom first on a computer, that capability to engineer glass at that
1: level is, is quite new. We haven't identified. This is off-limits or this is the no-go space because I think we want to challenge ourselves to see why not glass.
0: Of course, you know what they say about people who live in glass houses. They don't have anywhere to hide.
1: I would never want to live in a place that was all
4: glass. That sounds horrible. I, I am more interested in glass being used where it matters and when it should be used.
0: Glass has been part of our civilization for thousands of years, but it turns out it still has a few surprises left in it. In every generation, a new batch of artists and engineers falls under its spell, and they're thinking hard about where glass should fit into our lives in the future. That's all coming up right now. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Zoonish. It's a podcast from the high-tech hub of Boston, where we ask what the world of tomorrow will look like, and how we can each make it our own because the future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. This is the Corny Museum of Glass. Like any self-respecting museum about science, it's got one of those audio kinetic sculptures where marbles roll around on tracks and skitter across noisemakers. The marble machine fits in at the Corny Museum because, well, if you're like me, Marbles were the first glass objects you played with as a kid. But the museum is here partly to remind us that there are so many other uses for glass. Right above the marble machine is the biggest object in the whole museum. It's a huge disc of Pyrex glass that was intended to be the mirror for the 200-inch Hale Telescope at Caltech's Palomar Observatory in California. The Hale was designed to be the largest telescope in the world, able to see farther into space than ever before. It was basically the Hubble Space Telescope of its day, which meant Caltech needed the largest piece of glass ever made. On March 25, 1934, workers at Corning spent 10 hours pouring 20 tons of molten glass into the mold for the mirror. And then just about everything went wrong. The mold broke. The glass was allowed to cool off too quickly, which led to cracking. And bubbles inside the glass created puck marks on the surface.
3: That first attempt to make that object didn't work on many levels.
0: <laughs> this is Jane Cook. She's the chief scientist at the Corning Museum.
3: The formulation was wrong, the, the melting process, the mold was wrong. But in, in really wonderful scientific fashion, they turned the failure into a success that then informed the next iteration of that attempt to make this gigantic piece of glass.
0: On the second try, Corning let the glass cool for 10 whole months.
2: The first effort to create this was at the very edge of what was possible. And as it turns out, the first attempt, it wasn't really possible. Marvin Bolt is the museum's curator of science and technology. But in learning why it failed, it was possible to make the second version, which turns out to be the largest telescope in the world throughout the 20th century. And so you're always trying to tweak the properties of glass to do things that hadn't been done before. And they don't always work the first time, or the second time, or sometimes the tenth time. What the Corning engineers were learning
0: was something that glassblowers have known for thousands of years. It's that glass sort of has a mind of its own. One glassmaker put it to me this way. You don't tell glass what to do. You listen to what it wants to do. And there's another strange thing about glass. Sometimes its job is to disappear.
2: In a way, you don't want glass to be visible because if it's too visible, it's sort of like a referee in a, in a sporting event, right? You don't want to see the referee. I mean, that's not what you're there for. And in many cases, the glass isn't there to be seen explicitly. It's to enable an experience to happen. You don't want the wind blowing through your house or something like that.
0: But other times, glass is meant to be seen. It doesn't just transmit light. It catches it and transmutes it in a way that our monkey brains seem to find irresistible. I mean, there's a reason we have so many fairy tales about crystal balls and glass slippers and magic mirrors.
2: So when people come to the museum, they expect to be here, oh, maybe half an hour, an hour. I mean, what could there possibly be that's interesting about glass, right? I mean, glass is glass. Well, we find that they not only stay for four hours on average, but they come back a second day because they're bewitched.
0: Now, part of the magic of the Corning Museum is that it's not just about the history of glass or the science of glass. It's also got a massive collection of glass art and artifacts, starting with ancient Egyptian glassmakers 3,500 years ago and going all the way up to contemporary studio glass.
1: I think this linkage between art and technology for glass is quite compelling.
0: This is Laurie Hamilton. She's the Director of Commercial Technology for the Glass Technologies Division of Corning, Incorporated.
1: We bring our customers for consumer electronics or other applications and spend time with them at the glass museum looking at glass designs, what glass can do, um, as a way to have them think not only about the technical attributes of glass, but how can glass be incorporated into the design.
0: Later in the show, we'll spend more time talking with Laurie Hamilton about the future of glass. But right now, I want to go deeper into this connection between the technology of glass and the art of glass. Because I'm interested in this special place that glass occupies in our culture, as a material that's both incredibly useful and incredibly beautiful. And one good place to start is in an actual glass-blowing studio.
5: If you walked into this studio without knowing what was going on here, you would definitely think that this was some kind of very strange science with all the combustion, all the tubes, the blowers, the fans, the weird looking boxes that are at a thousand degrees and everything else. Um, Every now and then somebody will come in here that's just delivering something and they just look around and it's like, you know perfectly well they think that you're doing, you know, recombinant DNA on, uh, on aliens or something.
0: Meet Josh Simpson. He's been running this studio in Shelburne Falls in Western Massachusetts since 1976. And he's not doing recombinant DNA experiments on aliens. He uses the molten glass from his furnaces to make a huge variety of bowls and vases and platters. He also makes these mesmerizing glass spheres that he calls planets. But today, Simpson isn't making planets. With his assistant Jay Brown, he's making platters and he's cooked up several different experimental formulas of glass that he wants to swirl together to see if he can create a pattern like the stellar nebula, like the ones you see in photos from the Hubble Space Telescope.
5: So there are three furnaces where I melt glass. The largest one over there on the right is uh, a giant furnace of about 400 pounds of molten liquid glass. And the next one is a silver glass. And the third furnace is my Heisenberg furnace. It's the experimental furnace where there are actually three crucibles inside that allow me to do a new experiment every week.
0: And why do you call that the Heisenberg
5: furnace? Oh, well, there's a whole um, group of glass gods out in the world, and they're all malevolent. They, they all try their very best to mess you up. I mean, glass should be so perfect and so simple. It's not. It, uh, there are sometimes hundreds of steps from the formulation of a glass to the finished object that I make one mistake in any of those and it's death and uh, so it's called the Heisenberg furnace and we have a photograph of of Werner Heisenberg there because of his uncertainty principle which of course doesn't really refer to glass but we like it okay so we've got these blowpipes over here and they are red-hot on the end and I will open the clear glass furnace and take a gather. Okay, so I've gathered uh, gather molten liquid glass on the end of my blowpipe, and now I'm just shaping it a little bit with a block of wood. And I don't know if you can see that, there is this is an embryo platter. I have to build up layer after layer of glass. And so I have the first gather with a little bubble and now I'm going to gather another gather on top of that.
0: Okay. Looks like you got about two or three times as much that time.
5: Yeah, Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. Um, The larger the first gather, the more glass I can take on the second gather. In this case, I'm taking two gathers of clear and the next gather that I'll take will be out of my experimental Heisenberg furnace. Okay,
0: you're going up to the Heisenberg furnace. I have to be careful not to melt the styrofoam wind cover on my microphone. (laughs) But it it
5: is a great sound. If you care about your art, you should be willing to melt a microphone now and then. Once in a while, yeah, I think so. So I'm just turning the glass in this block of wood and I'm actually trying to shape it and thin it, make it thinner near the blowpipe. Eventually, I have to get this platter off the blowpipe. And I'm just making a line where, that, where I will eventually propagate a crack and shatter the glass away from the blowpipe. And then I, there's just no other way to do this. I have to hit it with a hammer. Ready? There we go. And, and this failed, Jay. Uh oh. Okay, the whole piece Uh-oh. cracked. The whole thing's done. Uh, the thing there's no way to save this now. I will heat it up a little bit because I'd like to see what this inside would have looked like. But what happened was, when I propagated that crack, it didn't crack perfectly around. It also cracked down into the body of this piece, and so there's just no recovery from that.
0: So the gods of glass were not smiling this morning. Yeah.
5: I mean, yeah, they're not friendly, but I'd still like to see what it it would have looked like. I'm going to take my scissors anyway and shear this lip so we can see what the experimental glass did and then we just have to start another one.
0: And that's exactly what Josh did. I watched him and Jay repeat all the same steps over the next 45 minutes until he wound up with a beautiful platter more than two feet across covered with eddies of blue and red and magenta. Josh put the platter into the annealing oven so that it could gradually cool down to room temperature. And we went into a quieter part of the studio where we could talk about his 45 years as a glass Can you pinpoint the moment where you realized that you could use glass to evoke these feelings or images of space?
5: You know, that's a great question because I can. The first time that I realized that I could use glass in a way that was not functional or utilitarian, was actually at the Shelburne Falls Post Office. And I went in one morning to uh, just to mail a package, and there was a guy, I don't actually, I didn't actually know his name, but he had purchased some wine goblets from me that had my, what I call the New Mexico pattern, sky pattern on them. And he said, you know, last night I was drinking out of your wine goblets, and suddenly we weren't drinking out of your goblets at all. We were drinking out of the sky. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, oh my goodness, how much, how much had he been drinking, you know? But it did make me suddenly realize that something as functional and utilitarian and, and plain as a wine goblet could actually say much more than its function.
0: I want to ask a question about glass as a material, like um, there's plenty of glass on the space station, right? It's probably very special glass, but it's still glass. So it's a very modern uh, material and it's also an ancient material. And uh, I wonder whether you think of it as like, it's kind of a miraculous material in a way. Glass
5: is totally miraculous. It, um, There are as many recipes for glass making as there are for all the breads, cookies, cakes, in the in the world, one thing that I do sometimes is I react silver metal with nitric acid to make silver nitrate, and I can use silver in those silver salt forms to melt silver directly into the glass surface um, while it's while it's molten, and it creates some characteristic effects that that no one had figured out how to do. I call it New Mexico glass because it. It, I had an idealized version of what the sky was like in New Mexico at night, but it, I lear- I've learned how to do little esoteric things like that, which have meant a big deal to me because it's allowed me to make platters and wine goblets and bowls that look different than anything anybody else makes.
6: The thing about Josh is that he's really focused for decades on, on building. He, he's been very focused.
0: This is Peter Houck another master glassblower based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I asked him about Josh's work during a visit to the MIT Glass Lab, which Hauk directs.
6: Just what he's discovered about uh, mixing his own colors and the way the colors interact, the way to introduce decoration and patterns, and sometimes bubble patterns, um, and create optical effects by having lots of glass magnify all that, It's it's been a journey for him. And I respect that he's, he's put so much into really understanding that area but no
0: amount of understanding can spare you from the anger of the glass gods remember that second space nebula platter that i watched josh finish the day after i visited josh emailed to say that platter also shattered while it was cooling down in the annealing oven but the third platter josh made that day came out beautifully so maybe heisenberg was talking about glass after all since we're doing physics jokes this might be a good time to ask what glass actually is chemically it's pretty simple The main ingredient is silica, or silicon dioxide, which comes mainly from sand. Window glass has extra components like soda and lime. Pyrex has additives like boron trioxide that keep it more stable at high temperatures. But what all those molecules actually do when you melt them together is harder to explain. I asked the experts for more details, and every time I got a slightly different answer.
5: Glass is an alchemic blend of sand and metallic oxides combined
6: with extraordinary blinding heat. Glass is still not completely understood. You know, It's an amorphous material. They wouldn't use the term amorphous. You can never predict where a crack will go when you, when you crack glass. So the question comes down to that glass isn't uniformly random whereas with metal, it fails along a, a boundary line because of its crystalline structure. Glass doesn't do that. It's a strange and different material.
3: Glass is very, very rare. There's a special combination of atoms that allow for it to be disordered on a larger scale, but incredibly ordered still
2: at the local scale. So glass is a frustrated crystal. It's a material that wants to crystallize, but you cool it quickly enough so that it can't quite crystallize. And so you have different kinds of structures that are almost crystal-like, but they don't replicate over a large scale. And that gives glass its interesting properties. So the fact that it's transparent, uh, of course, if glass wasn't transparent, we wouldn't have it because that's one of the reasons why we've been using it for so long.
0: Those definitions came from Josh Simpson, Peter Houck, Jane Cook, and Marv Bolt. Now, one thing they all agree on is that glass is not a liquid. There's a notion you hear sometimes that glass flows just very slowly, but it's a myth. If you see a really old window pane that looks thicker at the bottom, it's not because the glass flowed downward. It's because it was made that way. But the fact that glass is a liquid when it's hot has some really interesting consequences. First off, it means glassblowers have to move fast and work together, the way I saw Josh Simpson and Jay Brown working together. In fact, that's one of the reasons MIT has a glass lab.
6: MIT had a problem graduating students who were very good Kind of individualistically, but they didn't work well with others always. And glassblowing, you have to work with others. You, you can't blow glass unless you can work with an assistant and be clear with them about what you need and come up with a plan and convey the plan to them and articulate you know what the steps are. And if things start to go south, you have to improvise and not lose your cool. Second,
0: glassblowers say there's something a little meditative about that whole process. Real glassblowing Jedis tend to get into a state of, for lack of a better word, flow.
6: So it's, it demands great focus. Glass blowing does. You cannot do it if you're not totally focused on it. If you lose your sense of heat timing and the kind of history of heat through a piece, you'll lose the piece. Or you'll lose control of the shape of the piece. So it demands a kind of focus that I think some people find really relaxing and therapeutic.
0: And finally, every piece of glass has to be bent and blown and shaped into its final form, which means that if you know what you're looking for, you can glance at a finished piece of glass and kind of read the motions that went into making it.
4: I think of it as a movement-based practice.
0: This is Helen Lee. She's the director of the glass lab at the University of Wisconsin, Madison.
4: To see a historical vessel and replicate it as a technical exercise in some ways is, an act of reenacting a history of someone else's body movements at some point in time making that vessel.
0: Now, I love this idea. It means that a piece of glass is basically a frozen story about the way somebody directed the flow of glass when it was still molten. And there's one new way of making glass objects where those movements are controlled by a computer instead of a human glass blower. That's the 3D printing of glass. It's a technology that got its start right inside the MIT glass lab. Peter Hauck tells the story.
6: So five or six years ago, we had a student, a mechanical engineering student named Mike Stern, and his mech E specialty was additive manufacturing. And one day he came up to me and said, Do you think it would be possible to build a 3D printer that prints hot glass like furnace hot glass? And my first response was like, Are you crazy? That's, that would be insanely hard to do. And he said, well, but not impossible, right? Maybe we could do that. So, you know, we kept talking about it, and finally he met a group of students in the Media Lab with Neri Oxman, who said, th- this is a cool idea, and one of them wanted to do a master's thesis on it. Neri found some funding, and the thing got built. It got built over there in the Media Lab, and then it got tested in the Glass Lab over a couple of years until we were 3D printing hot glass.
0: You can tell when a piece of glass has been 3D printed, because it looks like it's been built up layer by layer, sort of like an igloo, or that beehive on the Utah State flag.
6: Version two of that printer is now in my off-campus studio at Avon Place Glass, and um, it's printing, you know, kind of, oh, 300 by 300 millimeter objects right now that can be combined to make architectural scale structures.
0: Last year, Hauck and Stern and Oxman and a team from MIT used their glass printer to make dozens of stackable clover shaped structures. They took the modules to Italy, where they used them to build a kind of light sculpture made of sparkling three meter high columns.
6: So, this all happened because some student just got this crazy idea. But I think at MIT, that happens because, um, you know, we've got these students who are taking thermal fluids classes and all these academic classes where they're kind of looking for ways to connect what they're learning academically with something that happens in the real world.
0: Now, there's a more familiar glass object that's also a frozen record of the way molten glass once flowed, and that's the screen of your smartphone, which brings us all the way back around to Corning Incorporated and the invention of Gorilla Glass. Back in 2007, when Apple was building the very first iPhone, Steve Jobs had a problem. The iPhone was the first smartphone that didn't have a physical keyboard. Basically, it was all screen. But on the early prototypes, that screen was made from plastic. And Jobs found that after carrying the phone around in his pocket for a few weeks, that plastic screen got all scratched up. Here's Lori Hamilton from Corning.
1: And he made contact with Wendell Weeks, our chairman and CEO, and asked, could glass be used in this application? And because of our expertise in glass science and because the capability of the fusion process, within six months, we were able to provide a material that met the requirements for the scratch resistance, uh, the design, and also the optical features. And then the success of that has led to continued generations. And now we're on Gorilla Glass 5
0: the fusion process that Hamilton just mentioned isn't nuclear fusion, although that would be pretty awesome. She was talking about the fusion draw process. That's a technique Corning developed back in the 1960s as a way to make extremely flat glass.
3: It's one of these classic Corning stories of something getting invented that has, in the end, isn't really appropriate for the task at hand at the time and gets put on a
0: shelf. That's Jane Cook again from the Corning Museum of Glass. The way she explains it, Corning was originally looking for a better way to make plate glass. Traditionally, manufacturers make plate glass by floating molten glass on top of a lake of molten tin. But glass made this way is never perfectly flat. Corning's engineers invented a process where molten glass flows into a pipe and then bubbles up through a slit in the top of the pipe. The hot glass flows down around both sides of the pipe and then As those two sheets of glass get pulled down by gravity, they fuse and form a surface that's incredibly flat because it's never touched anything other than air. It turned out that the fusion-draw process was too expensive for making plate glass. So it got put aside for a few decades. Until Corning was looking for a new way to make perfectly flat glass to hold the electronics inside the flat screens of computer displays and TVs. In the early 2000s, Cook was part of the team at Corning that adapted the fusion draw process for this new application.
3: That was sort of the magic of the early 2000s at Corning is that we figured out how to make this extraordinarily strange, wonderful glass.
0: Pretty soon, display glass was one of Corning's biggest businesses. And when Steve Jobs came calling in 2007, the company figured it could adapt the fusion draw process to make this super thin, super hard glass for the top layer of the iPhone screen. And that's how Gorilla Glass was born.
3: Because of the work that had been done five years earlier, the platform was in place to, and and the flexibility and the understanding of how that machine worked was in place that we could take this now completely different glass formula, which Gorilla Glass is very different than that LCD uh, glass, and adapt it quickly enough To begin to make the new material, so one standing on top of another.
0: Within a few years after Apple released the iPhone, a whole bunch of phone makers were using Gorilla Glass on their own devices. And that got the people at Corning thinking, hey, maybe we can take this even farther. Maybe Corning could help build a world where even more things are made of glass, and all of those things can display information. That was the world Corning showed in A Day Made of Glass. Maybe you saw the video when it first came out in 2011. It's a five minute video that follows a family that basically lives in a glass house, and has a glass car, and two kids who go to a glass school. In this near future world, almost every surface that can be turned into a display is a display, from the closet doors, to the kitchen counters, to the refrigerator. The video was so slick that it went totally viral. As of today, it has 26 million views on YouTube and the website Marketing Daily called it the most viewed corporate video in history.
1: Six years ago, we developed this vision of how glass could impact our daily lives in a way that we might not even notice uh, from the moment we wake up till when we're at school or at work to social. um, And it's been a passion of ours to look at how we could help to enable this through glass.
0: Ever since the video came out, Corning has been looking for ways to make that science fiction world real. For one thing, that means taking the Gorilla Glass that went into that first iPhone and making it even stronger, thinner, lighter, and more scratch-resistant. It also means looking for other places to put Gorilla Glass. Hamilton says that if automakers used Gorilla Glass in windshields and the side windows of cars, it would reduce the overall weight of the glass in our vehicles by 40%.
1: Also, we're working on Gorilla for the interior of the car, It gives consumers that touch and feel that they've become accustomed to with their smartphone. We've also developed ways to process a gorilla to make three-dimensional shapes. So it's not a simple, flat, rectangular display. It could be shaped and curved and provide a different kind of aesthetic.
0: Now, there was something pretty audacious about a day made of glass. Corning itself only makes glass, it doesn't make any of the electronics you would need to turn these big surfaces into screens, or the software and the networks you'd need to make the screens useful. But Hamilton says that was part of the point of the video, to get other companies to buy into Corning's vision.
1: Um, we look for partners, but we're also realistic about what are the things that can be enabled next year versus ones that may take five or, or ten years.
0: Getting the right companies on board for this vision of a world made of glass could take a while. But that might be okay, especially if it gives us extra time to think about how we really want to use this technology. After all, we've now had about a decade to play around with our glass smartphones and our glass tablets, and we're already starting to think that maybe these glowing glass screens are a little too mesmerizing, and that maybe there's such a thing as being too connected to the infosphere. Here's a bit more from my conversation with Helen Lee at the Glass Lab at the University of Wisconsin.
4: Yes, Glass is amazing. Yes, it's super cool that the engineers at Corning, like, keep making all these new things. But I do think culturally, just as a consumer, as a citizen, as an artist, as a person, like there was this moment where we just all went to these glass screens, like our input devices became the screen all in this one fell swoop. I think the state of technology is actually really quite awkward right now in terms of people like having lots of it and people not necessarily knowing what to do with it or how to apply it or when it should or when it shouldn't be used.
0: If I understand you right, you're, you're saying that maybe we rushed to try and put every imaginable function onto a glass surface and we haven't necessarily figured out which functions really uh, are, are most suited to glass? Um, oh,
4: I don't know. I guess I'm just like I'm personally speaking, I would never want to live in a place that was all glass. That sounds horrible. right? Because glass does not do all the things I want it to do. This vision of glass as everything, I think that's like a glamorized, idealized vision that industry puts out. When it comes to reality, I guess I, I am more interested in glass being used where it matters and when it should be used.
0: Earlier we heard Jane Cook explaining how she was on the team that perfected the fusion draw process, which led to Gorilla Glass and turned into a huge business for Corning. I asked her how she felt about being part of that, and her answer surprised me. A
3: lot of times it feels really good, uh, but technology is uh, is neutral, right? It's what we choose to do with it. Displays, because they're bright, because they're there, and and they're moving, and they're changing, and they, they draw your attention away from from, from the object world, when someone gets injured because they're looking at their handheld walking across the street or children getting tied to their, uh, to their games and things, I worry about it. I think it's, there, there's ethical uh, considerations that, and, and human considerations about what it means to have access to so much data without having access to wisdom.
0: So we probably need to keep thinking about where we want more glass in our lives and where we don't. But if we've learned anything about glass, it's that it's unpredictable. The mirror for the world's largest telescope can crack before you even take it out of the mold. A beautiful glass platter can shatter before you even take it out of the oven. And a totally uneconomical method for making window glass can turn out to be perfect for making display glass. And maybe all that makes glass a good reflection of the larger world of modern technology. There are no limits to its value or versatility, but we can never quite calculate what it's going to do.
6: I'm just amazed at glass's ability to be sort of reinvented by people in a new way because it's, it's just such a strange and rich material.
0: So who knows? Maybe the future will be made of glass.
6: Yeah, no, I think glass will continue to be that kind of material that yields new results, and you won't always know what they are when you invent them, but then later on a use will be found for them. I think glass is still generating that kind of thing, and will.
0: Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. The show's theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. All of our other music this week came from the enormously talented composers Joel Roston and Andrew Willis of Title Card Music in Boston. Soonish is available wherever you get your podcasts, including the NPR One app. And now another great place to hear the show is on Radio Public. The app is free and easy to use. And get this, now Radio Public pays podcasters every time their shows get played in the app. So, when you listen to Soonish on Radio Public, everyone benefits. Another awesome way to support the show is to make a pledge on Patreon. Even $1 per episode helps a lot. But we've also got special rewards available for people who pledge at $3 per episode, $5 per episode, or more. The show's current Patreon supporters are so great that I've just gotta thank them by name. Thank you to Paul and Patricia Rausch, Celia Ramsey, Kent Rasmussen, Victor and Ruth McElhaney, Elizabeth Blanche, Evan Blanche, Chuck and Gail Mandeville, Ellen Leentz, Mark Polovsky, Graham Ramsey, Zach Davis, Jean-Jacques de Groof, John Denitz, Greg Huang, Deborah Rossum, Scott Rankin, David Stenman, Tracy Stetter, Julianne Zimmerman, Daniel Imrie Sitoniaika, Kieran Wagle, and Lynn Rosenthal. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreoncom Soonish. Now, speaking of Patreon, I want to tell you a little story about my friend and colleague, Tamar Abishai. She makes the amazing art history podcast, The Lonely Palette, which is part of the Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. Back in December, she promised that if she made it to 75 supporters on Patreon, she'd make a special episode of The Lonely Palette about that goofy painting, Dogs Playing Poker. It kind of started out as a joke, but Tamar wound up hitting her target on Patreon, and now she's actually finished the episode. And it turns out to be a pretty deep and fascinating journey into the relationship between art and kitsch in the 20th century. You can hear the whole doggone episode now at thelonelypalette.com. At our website, soonishpodcast.org, you can find out more about all the people and ideas in this episode. You can also join our email list and browse the archive of previous episodes. You can join our growing tribe of Twitter followers at Soonish Podcast. Special thanks this week to Kip Clark, Joseph Friedman, Mark Polovsky, Josh Simpson, Jay Brown, Peter Houck, Helen Lee, and all of the brilliant and generous people I met at Corning Incorporated and the Corning Museum of Glass. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soonish.